0: We find ourselves right now in our final uh, week of this series that we've been doing as a church called By Faith, where we have been looking at the stories of the Bible, looking at the stories of men and women throughout all of Scripture who have embodied what it means to be people of faith. And um, this week we come to a passage that talks about running the race. Now, it's kind of poignant for me. Uh, because the last few weeks I have been a part of uh, a group of people training for the Fox Valley Half Marathon over at Wayside Cross in Aurora. I don't know why I'm doing this. It was a really dumb idea, I'm going to be honest. Uh, It sounded very healthy and a wise choice at the beginning, and now I'm doing it, and now we're kind of getting up to the point where you got to run eight miles at a time, and my whole body is saying, you're an idiot. Uh, It's really painful, and I remember I did one half marathon a a few years ago, it was equally as painful. So I find myself, again, find, asking myself the question, how did I get myself in this position? And I feel sorry for the other people who are running the river trail in the morning because they see me kind of running, breathing as though I'm dying. Uh, and, and surely someone out there is like, I, I'm kind of worried about that guy that was running past. But so far I've survived, so hopefully I can survive the whole thing. But it's been kind of a unique experience. And the way it started is Pastor Bruce, who some of you guys know him, a pastor here at Chapel Streets. Uh, he's a big runner. He loves to do marathons, things like that. Uh, And so he saw this ministry opportunity to partner with some of the residents over at Wayside Cross and kind of help them by taking part in this marathon together. Uh, And if you've ever, if you've talked to Pastor Bruce about running at all, you know he's like 10 levels past where everybody else should be who's ever run a marathon. He, he, you may remember, did uh, a, a run across the Grand Canyon. It's called the Canyon to Canyon, I think, where you go down into the Grand Canyon and up down into the Grand Canyon and up, and then do that one more time. That's what it's called. Rim to rim to rim is what it was called, I think. So it, it, he is, he's the guy that's all in on this. And so I'm finding myself trying to keep up with a guy like Bruce. And the whole time I'm asking myself, is this really worth it, right? I, I can see how much he loves it. I can see how excited he is about it. But I just, I feel the pain in myself. I feel the exhaustion in myself. Is this really worth my running? And really that's an interesting question because I think whether you are a marathon runner or not, everybody is asking the question, am I chasing something that's worth it? Am I running after something that's worth my energy and my time? And sometimes we feel exhausted, we feel worn down, we look around, and we see people excited and enthused, and we ask ourselves: am I really chasing the right thing? Am I heading towards the right thing? And that was actually really the situation for the people who first received the letter of Hebrews. This was a church in the early part of uh, the turn of the, the millennium where Jesus had risen, Christianity was growing, and these Hebrew Christians received this letter because they were struggling with this race that they found themselves in. They were asking the question, is it worth it? Is it worth me chasing this Jesus when it's costing me all of this stuff? They were Christians that were persecuted. They were facing all kinds of challenges, and they were wondering, is it worth it to be running this race? And what the author of Hebrews wants to do is is he finishes up what we call the hall of faith, this list of different people, different men and women who have lived by faith. He wants to remind them, yes, it is absolutely worth it. This is what he writes in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. He closes out the previous chapter and then writes, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I wanna highlight three things that I think in this passage will help us Think about our own race and help shape how we think about faith. I want to talk about the forerunners, the founder, and the finish. But along the way, I want us to keep this question in mind. What are you chasing? What is it that you are running after, that you are putting your heart and soul after? And is it worth it? Let's talk about the forerunners first. The forerunners. Now, I've got a picture, actually, from the last time I run a half marathon up here. Uh, I'm with a whole crew of people. I'm the one that's dressed like a moron. I don't know why. I, there was a weird bandana thing that I had going on. When you're bald, you don't have any hair, and so you think, well, I should probably put something on top of there. But I'm with this whole crowd of people, and this is where I showed up for the race that morning. We had a whole bunch of people who were part of Team Well Vision. Pastor Bruce is right there next to me. Uh, everybody's getting ready for this. And when I showed up and I saw this crowd of people around me, all of a sudden I forgot what I was about to have to do. And I was having a great time, we're laughing and smiling, like I'm forgetting I'm about to have a really rough couple of hours running this race. And you know what happened? Is when we started running, up until this point before this event, the most I could run for a constant stretch of time was like three or four minutes. That's how out of shape I was. But I started talking to these people, the race started, and before I realized it, I've run a couple of miles and I haven't even stopped. And I genuinely, it wasn't that I was tired and all of a sudden it caught up with me. I just wasn't even paying attention to how I was feeling. I was consumed with these people around me who were having such a great time. those crowds around us cheering and I forgot all about me and all of a sudden I was just having a great time in a race. Having a great time running with people who I love and who love me it was a really bizarre experience. And even now as I run with guys from Wearside Cross and I'm doing it, I am not the fittest one there by any stretch of it. There's guys that run straight past me but I can tell you, it makes a difference who you run with. It makes a difference on how you feel about yourself. It makes a difference about your own ability even. Things that you didn't think that you were capable of all of a sudden happen naturally because of who you choose to surround yourself with. So that's why at the close of this little section, the author of Hebrews wants to direct us towards this cloud of witnesses. This list and this group of people that we are surrounded by both in the past and in the present, people who have run this race. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great of a cloud of witnesses, he says, let us also lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, if we know all these stories, if we consider the faith of people that we've read about over the last few weeks, people like Abraham, people like Gideon, people like Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Rahab, all of these people are meant to motivate us and transform the race for us. That's why he says, since then, so then, these people should make a difference. And the first way it makes a difference is it motivates us. It motivates us. The cloud of witnesses motivate us. It should motivate us that every single story of faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews began with regular people like you and me. Amen. Amen. I love when I'm in church and people do that. We should all be so excited about the fact that all of these people, these people who did great things, miracles, who were a part of seeing God in part oceans, liberate slaves, rescue people, redeem people, all of them were people just like me and you. Flawed people, broken people, people with pains and burdens and questions and doubts. Second reason it should motivate us is that these people had a whole mess of different kinds of moments, didn't they? It's not just a list of people who had really high points in their lives. It's a list of people who had very, very low points too. Just last week, we heard about people who conquered nations by faith, but then also people who suffered, people who were persecuted, people who lost loved ones and endured, people who faced trials of various kinds. It reminds us that God is at work in blessings and in trials. that He doesn't leave you. You're not cut off from his grace by different things that happen in your life. He's present in all of it. It should motivate us. And lastly, it should motivate us because it shows us that we are all part of something far larger than ourselves. All of these people were part of a promise that God was carrying out over generations of men and women. He made a promise to Abraham and even hundreds of years later, he's carrying it forward. No matter what the obstacles, no matter how broken the people were, no matter how rebellious the people were, the promise moves forward. You and I are part of something far greater than ourselves, a promise that is moving throughout history that God is inviting you and me to be a part of. The cloud of witnesses should motivate us, but it should also challenge us. It should challenge us In this verse, he says that surrounded by such a great cloud, therefore let us lay aside every weight, lay aside every sin, and run. What the author is saying is you should be encouraged by these people, you should be filled with hope, but they should also stir you to action. You should change, you should be moved, you should respond to what I've just told you. The author wants to challenge us to respond rightly to this crowd of witnesses, not just applaud them, not just be inspired by them and say, wow, aren't these people incredible, but to join them in the race. To leave the stands behind us and to come down and be present. And the way we join them is first by laying aside every weight. Now, I want to point out here that there's a difference between weights and sins. He doesn't just say well, that we want to run the race by getting rid of sin in our life. He also says to lay aside every weight. Weights are not things that are therefore necessarily bad. It's, no, we're not talking about sin. We are talking simply about those things in our life that keep us from running with all of our heart. Things that slow us down, Think things that are unnecessary and unhelpful. Now this can be work that spills over into the rest of our life. We come home from the office and all of a sudden I'm still doing the same things while we're having family dinner. My mind's consumed by it. I'm working longer than nine to five. Now I'm working midnight to the next midnight. It could be a hobby that threatens time. Maybe you are just indulging yourself in too many different things for too long and so you're not leaving aside time to be with your family, to be with neighbors who need you, to be with God himself. Maybe it's social media, which I'll admit for me is is a place where my heart just gets led in so many wrong directions. And I think about people in ways that I shouldn't and I respond to situations in ways that I shouldn't. And I fill my mind with things that are nowhere near as beautiful and as good as the plan of God in my life. Maybe it's sports, right? Unless you're a Bears fan and then you'll let that go pretty quick. But the list could be endless. We could keep going, movies, music, all kinds of things. What are the things in your life that are not necessarily bad but are slowing you down in your race? Ask yourself this question. Does this thing help me run or is it in the way? Does it help me run with endurance? And then the author also says lay aside every sin, which at the forefront might seem a little bit more obvious. Well, that makes sense. We want to we get rid of those things in our life that are displeasing to God, that dishonor God. But you know what the greatest challenge to any discussion about sin is? is it not, it's not things that are obvious, it's things that are subtle. It's not sins that we all know in our hearts are bad, things that we shouldn't be doing. It's those things in our life that we are permissive of that displease God, that dishonor God. Invite people to speak into that. Read God's word. Ask honestly, God, show me where my sin is. Show me where I'm displeasing you. I'm dishonoring you. I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. Help me find those places and help me deal with them. Let me cast them off. You know, one of the most poignant parts of the whole scriptures is where King David, uh, a king in the Old Testament, he has been found out as having committed adultery and having killed the husband of the wife that he committed adultery with. A prophet of God comes and he finds him. And he calls him out on this. And David's broken about it. He feels terrible about it. He knows he has to deal with this sin in his life. So he goes away and he writes Psalm 51. And you know what Psalm 51 says? This is David praying. He says, search me and know me, O God. Find any wicked way within me. Now that was just after he'd been caught out. And what he does is he doesn't just go and deal with what he has been called out on. He says, find the rest, God. Because that's not where it stops. There's other stuff in my heart, where I think about people, where that I'm responding to you, where that I'm treating you. We gotta get all of it out. Not just the ugly stuff on the service, but the deep things in me that need to change. I think that's a lesson for all of us to think about how we pray about our sin. Not to wallow in shame and guilt, but to come to a father who loves us and say, God, help me find those things that are not obvious to me. And help me clean them out. If you want to run with endurance, you've got to throw off the weights and the sins. And to do that, you have to be in community. And here's where we come to why I messed up the seats today. When you begin a journey of faith, it is not a solitary journey. It's a journey with a people and a family. It's a journey with the people who need to walk beside you. And we see all the time at Chapel Street Church, we want to have a commitment to this. We want to have a commitment to community. We want to be about community. We want to see one another. We want to love one another. And so this morning, I wanted to arrange the chairs in a way that you can see one another. I know it's not perfect, but I want you to look around this room and realize that this room is filled with people that God has called you to walk beside. These are not just fellow guests at a Sunday morning church. This is your family if you're a follower of Christ. It is filled with people that God wants to use to transform you, filled with people that God needs you to encourage and support and love on. And this is the part of the church where it gets really hard and messy because we don't like to share our lives with each other. It's uncomfortable, it's inconvenient, it can be painful. And I'm the worst at this I will own this as a pastor. Sometimes I come to church and I am so consumed with a sermon or an event or something else that's going on, maybe stuff that's going on with my own family at home, I don't think about the family that God has placed me in to serve and to love and through whom I can seek help and grace too. This is what the author of Hebrews says, chapter 10, one of the most important verses, in my opinion, in all of scripture. It says, says, 10 verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So it's apparent that in this community of people, there were some people who were starting to peel away from gathering together. They were thinking, I just I can't do this. I can't. I can't be all in on this. It's not working. I'm gonna, I'm gonna peel away. And what the author of Hebrews says, it says, don't do that. In all the pain, and all the strife, in all the struggle, don't do that. Don't pull away from community. Don't pull away from the people of God and the family of God. Push yourself further into it. Don't give up on that. If you are committed to following Christ, if you have committed to walk the journey of faith, then inbuilt into that, you've committed to walk with a family. Might not be the family that you want or the one that you expect. Might not always even be the family that you like, but it is your family. It has to be a priority. And we've already talked about why. It's because you need people in your life. You need people who are gonna call you out on the stuff that needs to change, the blind spots that you might have you will not always have the strength to go through life by yourself. You will not always have the wisdom to get through life by yourself. And so you need people. And I want to point out that while I believe that God alone is the answer to the problems in our life, not other people, do you know how God, without exception in Scripture, has most often revealed himself to people in need? Through his people. So if you find yourself in a spot where you're saying, God, I need you to break through in my life. I need to experience your grace. I need to see that you're real and you're present with me. But you are removing yourself from his people. You might be removing yourself from the very way in which God wants to reveal himself to you. But we don't just do it because we need people. People need you. And I'll say this as the pastor of this church. This church, all of it, Chapel Street, small C church, and then big C church, churches all around the world, It doesn't work unless all of us take up our roles and our positions and our place in the people of God and the body of Christ. We need everyone. There are things in your life and in your heart and in your mind that I don't have and I will never have and I cannot bring to the table, but you can. There are people who I might not be able to reach and minister to and serve and encourage, but you can. You might be a phenomenal mentor to a young child. You might be able to encourage someone who's in need in this church. You might be able to provide and serve. You might be able to help heal. And if you withhold that, you are causing damage to the body of Christ. Chapel Street in the church needs to be A church that values the work of God in the body of Christ, not through pastors and not through events, but through the people. That's why we chase this. That's why we say we want to be that kind of church. We cannot be all we are without you. And that's why this morning we look at each other to recognize that the work of God isn't on that stage, it's amongst his people. That's not the only thing we have to talk about this morning. We've got to talk about the founder too, the founder. Now, I'm I'm an Apple guy. I really like Apple computers. I love Apple stuff. I just think it looks cool. It costs far too much money, but it looks really nice. Uh, And I'm always fascinated by the story of Apple and by Steve Jobs. Some of you all, I'm sure, are familiar with Steve Jobs, one of the most famous men in the world when he was alive, Uh, the founder of Apple and eventually the CEO. But did you know that there was an almost 10-year period Where after Steve Jobs had founded Apple, he was dismissed from the company and spent 10 years away before he came back to become the CEO. He founded it with his friend Steve Wozniak, and Steve was kind of the visionary behind Apple. Steve was the engineer who would build the the computers, but Steve was the visionary who would drive the business ideas and the marketing. But he was let go in 1985 when they lost confidence in his ability to innovate and to lead them. And for nearly 10 years, Apple tried to recreate the, the magic without Steve Jobs. They tried to do it all without Steve Jobs, and they found flop after flop, and they sank deeper and deeper into trouble. Until eventually in 1997, Steve Jobs was brought back, and it entered the golden age of Apple, where they came out with the MacBooks that we now know, the iPod, the iPhone, all of this stuff that launched Apple to where it is right now because they decided to put their faith back in their founder. Now, sometimes we lose confidence in our founder too, and we become tired in the race of faith. We take our eyes off the one on whom our faith is built, the one who gave us faith, and through whom faith is perfected. And success at every stage of our own race will depend on whether we keep our eyes on the one who is our founder and perfecter. That's what Hebrews 12, 2 calls him. It starts, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Those are the two titles he's given. Now the first one, Jesus is the founder. What that means is that he is the point that established faith. He is the one that established faith. In all these stories that we read, it's God himself who shows up and finds people who are minding their own business, who are lost in their own stuff, and God comes to them and gives them faith. But being the founder of faith is more than just the one who starts the story. It's about the one who supplies the reasons to have faith. And that's Jesus. If you want to know why God is worth chasing, if you want to know why God is worth your faith, look at Jesus. Really look at him. Look at everything about him. Look at his goodness, his kindness. His generosity, his mercy, his justice, his power, his wisdom, his joy, his grief, his compassion, his devotion. Look at how he loved the unlovable. Look at how he forgave the unforgivable. Look at how he touched the untouchable. And Look at how he did the impossible. Let me ask you, what's worth chasing more than him? Who is worth chasing more than the one that did those things, who is those things? If you need to put your faith in something, why would it not be him? For all the things in this world that vie for our faith and our support and our trust, what is more dependable, more trustworthy than Jesus Christ? Who will be more gracious to us? Who will be more hopeful for us? Frankly, despite the many reasons we have to doubt and the struggles which I think are very real in in something like God and talking about God, I still think that Jesus Christ is the most reasonable choice for the faith of all mankind because there's never been anyone like him. You know, many of my unbelieving friends, sometimes they'll ask me, well, I would have faith in God if he just... Showed up, if I could just see him, if I could touch him, I could be with him. And the subtle irony of that is, you realize that that's exactly who Jesus is. God in the flesh come down so you could touch him, see him, hear him. He did that in history, and what did the people of his day do? Finally we see you, we get it now, we understand. No, they said, put him on a cross. Jesus is proof that God wants to be near to you, he wants to touch you, he wants you to hear his voice. He wants you to experience his kindness and his goodness and his faithfulness. And the only, way that's that, the only thing that stands in the way of you experiencing that is your choice to receive it or not. Our challenge is to keep our eyes on the one who is the founder of our faith. Look at the one who gave you his son, and remember, as the writer of Romans tells us, if he didn't spare his own son, what else is he going to keep from you? Jesus isn't just the founder, he's the perfecter. He grants us faith and then he grows our faith. In Philippians, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he writes, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't just give you faith and say, okay, now you're on your own, go figure it out. Jesus says, I'm going to walk with you through all of this. I'm going to perfect this faith. I'm going to stand by you. I'm going to hold on to you. I'm going to hold you together. Jesus' mission in your life is to grow your faith, to increase your trust in him so that you can continue to experience deeper and deeper levels of his love, his mercy, his justice. And here comes the hard part. If that's his mission, then that means he's gonna intentionally put you in positions where you have to trust him. He's gonna put you in places that make you uncomfortable, places that challenge you, I meet so many Christians and I will raise my hand and say I'm one of them who I want God to work in my life to grow my faith and then when I see how he wants to do it, I say, not that though, (laughs) not that. But I'll never learn to trust him more unless I go into uncomfortable situations where I'm forced to trust him. Faith is trust and trust requires risk. Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, he says, any trial can be a form of God's grace if it requires patience and faith and obedience and helps us grow. Anything. The coworker who drives you crazy can be an opportunity to grow in your faith. That family member who's always causing problems, who feels like a lost cause, is an opportunity for you to grow in your faith. That new financial crisis you're facing, house payments, car payments, health insurance payments, it's an opportunity for you to grow in your faith to trust God that he will provide and care for you and lead you. The unexpected health issue, all of it. If God is in the business of turning what the enemy intends for evil into something good, then that means the hardest parts of your life are all opportunities to experience grace. The hardest and most painful opportunities can be transformed into opportunities to strengthen and deepen your faith. Now, what I'm not saying, and I want to be clear about this, I'm not saying that trials and sufferings and pains are good. They're not good. I'm not saying that there isn't pain or fear or doubts. But I'm saying that it can be used for good, as painful as it is, provided that we let Jesus work in us and perfect our faith in the midst of them. My, my hope for you is that you would not be content with where your faith is today that you would want Jesus to perfect it and grow it. Because there's no safe plateaus in the Christian life. No place where it's safe to stand still in the middle of the race. Because there's a finish line that we've got to reach. That's how I want to close this morning, is looking at the finish. When I was running uh, that marathon I did a few years ago, uh, around about, it's 13.1 miles in the half marathon, and round about eight, nine miles, my legs just decided... We are rebelling against you. We don't want to be a part of this anymore, and I, I could feel it. Felt like my shins were going to break. It was it hurt so bad, uh, and so I'm limping along on this road towards Saint Charles. the the uh, The finish line was in downtown Saint Charles, and uh, right as I was coming down, I'm limping along. There's like eight year old guys passing me and everything. And I see the finish line. I could see it from where I was on the road. It was probably maybe a little bit less than a mile, but a a good ways away. I could see it. I could see the crowds. I could start to hear their voice cheering for people. I could hear the announcer saying, you know, so-and-so has passed the finish line in this amount of time. People cheering for them. And the same thing that happened at the front of the race when all of a sudden I forgot about me and how I was feeling started to happen at the end of the race because I could see the finish line. I know I'm almost there. I'm so close. I could be done with this thing real soon. And all of a sudden, I started to run a little bit. Mainly because I didn't want to walk across the finish line in front of all these runners I needed to run to. But generally, something changed in me by looking at the finish line, by seeing where I was almost there. And I knew that Janine and the kids would be waiting there for me, and it was gonna be something that I could be proud about and, and have achieved. Jesus is the finish line for our faith. That's why we've gotta look at him. Hebrews 12, 2, after it says he's the founder and perfecter, it goes on to say, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the finish line for faith. He's the fulfillment of the promise that God started with Abraham. He's what everything was always heading towards. Even in Genesis, when Adam and Eve betray God, when they rebel against God, they choose their own way. Do you know what God says? He says, there's a descendant coming from you, Eve, it's in Genesis 3.14, I'm, I'm gonna send someone and this serpent who, is, who has deceived you is gonna cr- bite his heel, but he's gonna crush its head. And there's this prophecy made, there's this promise that God gives, even right there at the very first page of human history and he says, we're heading towards someone who's gonna set this right. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. But Jesus is also at the end of this list, not just because he's the fulfillment of the promise, but because he himself is the greatest hero of faith. Do you know that Jesus had faith in his life? It's a strange thing to think about, isn't it? Because He's God himself. But God, when he became a man, when he became flesh as Jesus in his humanity, he had to trust himself to his father. He had to put his faith in his father. Philippians 2 tells us that he surrendered himself to death, even death on a cross. All these people who had gone before who had done so many spectacular things, Jesus' trial of faith was to give everything of himself up for the sake of other people and to hang on a cross. It says he despised the shame. For the joy set before him, he despised the shame. See, verse 2 is not just telling us that Jesus is the grounds for our faith. He's the finish line because he is the blueprint of what faith should look like when it's finished, should look look like a life that is ready to surrender itself, to die to itself, to obey God and love others even when it costs us. That's where faith is leading us. Not to gain, not to win, not to convince God or persuade God or anything like that, but because it brings us joy to be like Christ. Isn't it weird that, When we're talking about the cross, it would say for the joy set before him that Jesus chose that. Where's the joy in the cross? The joy was on the other side of it. Everything that would happen because of what Jesus did there. All the redemption and healing and hope and restoration that would come. Jesus saw beyond the cross, and so he carried the cross. And we need to see beyond the finish line too. When we talk about the finish line, we're not just talking about what it does in us, we're talking about where it's carrying us to. Because it is carrying us to the presence of the one who loves us. Hebrews 6 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have hope because Jesus has run ahead. He's reached the finish line and we are now following in his wake. Because of Jesus, our finish line is visible. We can put our eyes on it. We're not just called to join Jesus in his death, but in his resurrection as well. To know that there is a day coming in which God will wipe away every tear. He will set aside every brokenness. He will heal every wound. See, Jesus is vindicating in his resurrection the faith of everyone who's ever trusted in him, whoever will trust in him. And if we believe that, then we run hard because we know there is a short time left until all things are set right. He's worth chasing because he's gonna set it all right. Rest is coming, so let's not let up early. Let's not be satisfied. Let's chase him with everything that we've got for his glory, and for our neighbors. I'll finish just with this short story about a guy called John Stephen Aquari. John Stephen Aquari was a Tanzanian runner, and he was competing in a marathon in Mexico City. And Aquari, he cramped up in this race due to a number of different factors. He hadn't trained at altitude in his own country, and so things got really difficult for him. And at the 19-kilometer point in a 42-kilometer race, he just couldn't run anymore. He fell badly, wounded his knee, and he dislocated a joint uh, as well as putting his shoulder hard against the pavement. Things went real south. He, however, continued to get up and keep moving, and he finished uh, last among the 57 competitors who completed the race, finished dead last. The winner of the marathon uh, came in at uh, 2 hours and 20 minutes, and Aquari finished at 3 hours and 25 minutes. There was only a few thousand people left in the stadium where the marathon finished. Everybody had started to go home. And a television crew was sent out from the medal ceremony that was happening elsewhere to come because they'd heard a runner is is still finishing. There's someone coming into the stadium. And when he finally crossed the finish line, a cheer came from the small crowd. And when they interviewed him, they asked, Why would you continue running? Why would you keep running this race after all those things, after all those struggles? Why wouldn't you just stop? He said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. Christ Jesus did not die that you might just start a journey of faith. He died so you could finish and finish well. And so my, my hope for you, my plea for you is to cling to him, to look to the founder and perfecter of your faith who loves you who is devoted to you, who will carry you throughout every trial, every blessing. Cast off the weights and run with everything you've got towards the one who is everything that you need. Let's pray. Father, I thank you as always for this chance to gather as your people to remind ourselves and especially today as we sit in the way that we do to remind ourselves that you have called us to be a people together, to run a race together, Father, help us to see one another this morning. And most importantly, let us see you. Even as we look to this cross that's on the wall behind me, Lord, let us be reminded of the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross. God, give us grace as your people to follow you, to run hard and to reach the finish line as you did. We pray in your son's name, amen. I just want to thank you again for worshiping with us this morning. It's good to be together. And I mean what I said earlier. When we look around this room, when you see each other, I long as a pastor and I hope you experience as a church uh, that this is a place of family. If you have needs, let us know. We want to pray for you. We want to support you any way we can. Uh, We have a prayer team available we'd love. uh, Come forward, let us know, and we'll pray for you. And if you wanna get connected more, you can stop by our welcome desk. If you're a new guest, we've got a gift for you and you can learn a little bit more about ways you can connect with our church. But for now, let me offer you with today's benediction. Would you pray this with me? May we go in the name of our founder and perfecter, the one who for the joy set before him ran the race ahead and who will carry us to that finish line. It is in the grace of Christ Jesus that we go. Amen.